God, thank you for the truth that Christ is ours forevermore. Not one through merit, not one through work, not one through good deeds, but one through faith in Christ, who was righteousness for us, who accomplished all the good deeds and met all the standards so that you could apply your perfect righteousness to those who believed, to those whom you drew in faith to yourself. Lord, that's what you've called us to, a life of understanding that you are everything, a life of coming to terms with the fact that we exist for you, to love you, to please you, obey you, follow you, serve you, and to love the people you love, and to love the gospel that you have allowed us to enjoy and to invite the world that you've put us within to draw them, to call them, and encourage them to the same life that we enjoy in Christ through faith. In these moments, O oh God, I pray, you would do your work through the power of your Holy Spirit to convict hearts, to illuminate minds, to shine the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, to make yourself known to your people and draw them to yourself. And Lord, this morning as we look into your word, I pray you would lead us as we look at hard truths, as we look at at those things that are difficult and somewhat confrontational, certainly countercultural, pray that you would lead us, help us to be faithful, help us to see your truth and um, do a work in our lives so that this week is a week that pleases you as we seek to reflect God's glory to the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm learning more and more um, that uh, we live in a kind of a YouTube generation, the Netflix generation. I've kind of gotten used to that a little bit. And what are all the, I, there was a, a song, I, I can't remember, Roku and Hulu and what are all the other different ways you can watch videos, watch TV without having to do the commercial free, right? That's, that's kind of cool. And so when you finally get to like the Olympics or this is football season, so if you enjoy football season like I do and you're suffering through the football season and you have to watch those commercials, I mean, but it got me thinking, is it, thinking, hmm, what, what, what would we use if we were trying to put together an advertising campaign for Christians or Christianity? You know, Advertisers want to make sure that you understood, understand all the benefits and the purposes of their product. And they, they want to show you that they've put it to the test. That it can, that it can, it can last through the, the hardest uh, experiences. Like, for example, I'm going to show you this picture of this GM truck going through the terrain, right? And they, they say it's rugged. They say it's, it's an all-terrain vehicle. And but, you know, we want to see that thing in action. We want to, we want to see, can it perform the way they say it, it, it can perform? So they show it in action, and they, 
They let you see, yeah, it can, it can do what we brag to you that it can do. It can meet expectations. Or what about its hauling power, its ability for a payload, its ability to, to take your trailer down the road and uh, you can go camping, whatever. It has the capacity to do everything and more than what we have said it could do. Now, what would you do if you wanted to turn Christianity into an advertising campaign? Well, we're going to be looking this morning at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. And this is the advertising campaign for the Apostle Peter in inviting people to the expectation. What, what can you expect to be true of someone who is a follower of Jesus what kind of rugged terrain can they endure? What kind of hauling capacity do they have? What will the Christian look like with the power of the Spirit living within? So if you have your Bibles with me, open to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me just read the opening line for us so you can kind of get a preview of what we're talking about before we head into our text. If you're a guest with us this morning, you don't have a Bible. There is a Bible in the pew ahead of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, that is yours. Feel free to take it home. But we're going to be on page 1015, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, 21. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's the advertising campaign. That's what you have to expect. That's what you have to look forward to as a believer in Jesus Christ. That is the expectation. That is the, the rugged terrain of the Christian life. But that is also the power that the Spirit gives to you as you walk in his steps. And that's what we're talking about this morning. I'm grateful for a man that God used in my life many years ago to introduce me to this concept in a way that uh, was relevant and practical for the day. I was in my senior year at the Master's Seminary anticipating ministry in the future and uh, and wouldn't you know, I think it was September 11th? Was it September 11th? 12th? September 12th, 2005. Thank you. It was really memorable. <laughs> Terrible. My 28-year-old wife had a heart attack. Now, what made it difficult was the situation that she was involved in, involved the pastor of our church. It was, it was a hard time. And uh, experiencing that kind of suffering because we didn't know what the future was going to hold. Does this mean that I'm not qualified now for ministry? Because ministry is going to be full of hard things. And if, and if this hard situation led to to a heart attack, then what might future hard things mean? And, and, and does this mean that we now no longer should pursue ministry? A lot of questions. And this man in my life 
said to me, Andrew, if you can't submit to your pastor in hard things today, how do you ever expect to have credibility to encourage people to submit to the authorities that he's placed in their life someday in the future? I'm grateful for his words. God used them to help me come face to face with the significance of, of this passage today and the significance of Christ's example, this advertising campaign that you and I have been called to in that we are to walk in Christ's steps. And by the way, I, I want to break it to you. It might be a little hard to hear, but, but the steps of Christ took him to the cross. It took him to death. It took him to sacrifice. It took him to give up everything for the sake of love to the Father in submitting himself to the will of the Father. And that is both hard but also glorious. Because through suffering and through submission, in the hardest of circumstances, you invite God's presence in your life and you participate in the power that God gives through His Spirit because His grace is sufficient for you for His strength is made perfect in weakness. Be willing to submit in the hardest things for the sake of the glory of the cross and the glory of Christ and what He has done for you. And the radiant display, the reflection of God's glory emanating from your life because they don't see you anymore, they see Jesus. Because you can't do this on human strength. You can only do it through the power of God. That's what we're after. That's what Peter is inviting you to this morning. This radiant display of Jesus from your life. This advertising campaign of, of, of answering the question, who are you? What is your purpose in life? And, and what does the gospel accomplish in terms of power to help you overcome any kind of hard thing? What is a commitment and a confidence in the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the love of God, the care of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, the ability of God to help you through any circumstance, and that everything in this life will result in righteousness because at the other end of history is a righteous king who will make all things right. Do you trust that? Peter has been working through this little letter beginning in chapter 1 and working all the way through uh, the first half of chapter 2 and he's been laying this foundation of your identity. Who are you? He says in chapter 1 verse 1, you are elect. The, 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 the sum combined force of the Trinity working in your life to call you to salvation. The foreknowledge of the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. In chapter 1, verse 1, you are a stranger and a foreigner, an alien. Not only were they strangers and aliens in a physical way, but it pointed to their citizenship in heaven. We are also strangers and foreigners here and looking forward to citizenship in heaven. 
Chapter 1, verse 18, you are redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He bought you. You belong to him. Your life is not your own. You were born again in chapter 1, verse 23. Not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. Not with corruptible seed, but incorruptible. With the kind of living and abiding word of God that changes you. It doesn't leave you where you were. It gives you the power to be like Christ as the Spirit is working through your life. His power and presence showing up in you. And then in chapter 2, we have this this rapid fire succession of the identity that you have as a living stone, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood being made for worship in chapter 2, verse 5. In chapter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. God has laid claim on you. You belong to him. Peter's point through the first chapter and a half is that everything you are, you are in relation to him. Everything you are, everything that you have, everything that you are meant to do, you do in relation to him. You are called by God, given new life by God, set apart by God. Your faith is kept by God. You're meant to live in worship of God. You're given an identity that is related to God. So this is the advertisement of the Christian life. Believe in God and walk in his steps. This sounds easy, but we're going to see in this little segment of Scripture, we're going to come to terms with how difficult it is. And, and Peter just keeps stepping from one hard thing to the next. He, he started with uh, our submission to governmental authorities, and we know how hard that can be. And then he moves and transitions to what I might call the worst case scenario. And, and so if, if our submission is meant to, to happen in the worst case scenario, that means that anything better also is covered. <laughs> we do this because we belong to God. So what does this mean? What does this look like? That's where we find ourselves in our passage today. For some context, let's just back up for a moment to verses 18 to 20. I want to just fill out this scenario. I want us to help understand what we're talking about before we dive into verse 21. This is the worst case scenario in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's bring this home. Let's make this real practical. How would you counsel somebody who's in a situation like this? What kind of advice would you give? You're, you're Peter. Let's just put yourself in Peter's shoes. You're, 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 you're beginning to talk and provide some advice to somebody who meets this criteria, okay? He begins with the word servants. That's the translation. But the, the truth is, 
is, the word is oikates, which is a house slave. This is a person who is a slave in every sense of the word, just a slave in the context of the home. We don't know the specifics, but we do know the time. We know that the time of the first century, we know the challenges that slaves experienced in this first century period of time. Much like slavery that happened in our recent history, the slaves of this day would have experienced much of the same challenges, hardships. Peter begins to, to fill out for them the specifics. He, he talks about the, the, the hardness of their life under dire circumstances. He points to it three times. In verse 18 at the end, he says, uh, do this not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Whatever they're experiencing is not something they deserve. In, in verse 19, he says at the very end, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Here he says in verse 20, if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing. A group of individuals who were beaten for their faults. The, the word in the Greek is to strike with a fist, to buffet, to beat, to harm, to mistreat. Imagine the scenario of this slave who's, who's doing everything that he has been asked to do. He's following in obedience. He's paying attention to detail. He's getting up early. He's going to bed late. He's doing whatever he can with a, with a happy heart. And yet somehow out of the corner of his eye, he sees this fist coming his way and boom! The severe treatment of his master to him. He's diligent, he's respectful, he's full of integrity. He does whatever he can to honor the master and yet he receives this severe, unjust treatment. He's enduring through this treatment. He's bearing up under it. So let's just kind of bring all of this to, into contemporary vernacular, into contemporary 21st language. What, what would you say is happening? What is he experiencing here in, in, in your terms, in the terms of, of 21st century? Would you say he's being abused? Would you say that he's experiencing physical and emotional psychological abuse? Would you say that he is a, a victim in some ways? Would you say that he's being oppressed? How would you begin to provide encouragement to someone underneath these kinds of circumstances? They would have lived in a constant state of fear. Life was very hard. The advice that Peter gives will break all conventional wisdom. The advice that he gives will, will come against all of the social norms. He begins by telling them to understand and recognize their identity. He, he's already been beginning to walk through this in, in setting the expectation of the injustice that is going to come when he, when he mentions it in chapter 2, verse 12. Notice, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He wants them to understand that there's something significant about expectation and hope. 
hoping for the people who are subjecting them to this treatment in seeing the reflection of God's glory in their responses, the, the Christ on the cross through their responses, in confidence in a sovereign God, pointing them someday to the chance that they may be able to experience glory with God. They might glorify God on the day of visitation. So they're willingly embracing hard things for the sake of being a vessel of God, of salvation for the person who is harming them, injuring them, hurting them. So let's walk through this. How do you begin to, to give advice to somebody going through this situation? Verse 21 says, recognize your calling. Recognize your calling. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. And because Christ suffered for you, we have this example to follow. We have steps and footprints by which we are asked to step into. Peter puts it, you have been called to this. He's been setting this up from the very beginning of this, of this little letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to those who are elect, the called out ones. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, coming to him as to the living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, but chosen and precious. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's in chapter 2, verse 21, and on and on we go, finding this call of God in salvation for those whom God has called to himself and redeemed by precious blood. But bound up in that call of salvation is a call to faith. Bound up in that call to salvation is a call to believe that God is in control. No matter how difficult the circumstance. Because as we know, the just will live by faith. Not just faith for the future, but faith in the here and now. Faith in his sovereignty, his power, provision, protection, his providence, and his care for you. The question is, is God in control or not? And thus, bound up in your call to salvation is a call to suffering. Because you can't show faith in God unless life is hard. You can't begin to demonstrate that you believe that God is able unless you don't have the way to make things work the way you want them to work. So bound up in this call of faith is a call to suffer. You have been called to faith. We see this throughout the scriptures. One, one commentator puts it this way, suffering, in other words, is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they were called. It is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. It's God's way to champion the power of himself in working through hard things and the fact that he can use the worst possible circumstances to accomplish the greatest possible things. 
Jesus being the preeminent example of injustice, the preeminent example of one who experienced suffering and gave it all for the sake of salvation for you and I. The best things come to those who are willing to endure the hardship that the sovereign God has placed them under. I want you to understand the Christian life comes with warning labels. It's inherently dangerous. It's not safe from a human perspective. It's risky. It's hazardous to your health. But you've been called to faith in God. Are you willing to trust him in this way? You are called to faith in God. You are also called to follow God. We see that at the end of verse 21. It says, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Uh, this word uh, to, uh, about example is, is a word that, that literally means writing under. It refers to a pattern that is placed on the table that has letters on it and, and, a, and a sheet of tracing paper was put over top and it, and it was used especially for, for grade school kids who, who would trace over the letters as they're learning how to write. What do they look like? How do I begin to, to get the, the mental muscles to begin to fashion these letters in the right way? And so they lay this tracing paper over top of the original and they'd be able to learn through the process. Jesus is the original. And the tracing paper laid over his life is, is the life that he has purchased. Those who have come to him in faith, and, and as you begin to trace over his letters, the letters of Christ, as you begin to re reflect the glory of God, you, your life begins to look more like him in submitting to the will of the Father. Submitting to hard things for the sake of of trusting and believing God. Have you ever walked in really deep snow? Have you ever, ever done that? I can remember as a kid following after my dad. We were in central Pennsylvania, and, and that was when snow drifts there in central Pennsylvania really began to, to, to accumulate. We were out in the country, and, and we, were, we were walking for some reason out through the yard, and, and, and the snow was you know, up to my chest at that point, but I was a little uh, squirt. And, and so kind of walking in my dad's footprints because otherwise it's going to get lost. This is the kind of example that, that Christ has set for you. This is what he's calling you to. Not, not emblazing your own trail, but, but in following in the footsteps of your Savior. Peter has already pointed to the, the, the patterns of the former life. He, he's talked about the, the traditions of your former life, the former ways that, that we used to follow after. And, and, and instead of turning your heart towards those former ways, direct your heart to the example of Christ and step in his footprints. Jesus has said repeatedly throughout his ministry, follow me, follow me. So that those who were his want-to-be disciples would say, we'll follow you anywhere. Just let me first do this, or let me first take care of that piece of business, or let, let me first do this over here, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, uh, you don't really understand. You, you don't understand because you need to take up your cross and follow me. That's where my footprints go. 
And the Apostle Paul, in understanding this in Philippians chapter 3, in recognizing the wonder of who God is, says that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You want a fellowship with Jesus? You want to experience resurrection, power? The pathway is through the cross. And that's where the power and presence of God is. And as we saw last week on two occasions, I think in in verse uh, 19 and also verse 20, or maybe it's 18, I, I forget, but this is a gracious thing, or this is commendable before God. And we saw that this is grace, which means God is inviting you in to experience himself, which is the greatest gift known to man, the gift of the precious Savior that you can have as you embrace submission and obedience to God through submission to the authorities that he's placed over you and the circumstances that are very hard around you. Have faith and follow me. It really boils down and coalesces in in this understanding, I think put so well by Jim Elliott, as you know, who was a missionary back in the mid-1900s, who says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It really boils down to that. Whose property are you? Whose possession are you? Does God exist for you or do you exist for him? Who is the purchaser in this exchange? Who is the owner and who is the slave? By the way, he has just said in chapter 2, verse 16, Peter has, that you are a servant of God. And, and by the way, that word is doulos. You are the slave in this relationship. I'm the slave in this relationship. And so if God decides that he wants to use you as a vessel to go through hard things to accomplish a certain purpose, are you willing to lay it down? Are you willing to say, God, my life belongs to you. Take me home if that's what you choose. Let me go through difficulties if that's the way that your, that your purpose is will show up in this world. I love the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in prison, and he's writing to the church of Philippi, and he says, guess what? The thing that was meant by the world to be, be a blockade for the gospel, God has actually used to advance the gospel. He says, so the whole imperial guard has heard the truth. And there are some believers who, because of my imprisonment, have become emboldened to share the gospel. So so it had the reciprocal effect. What was meant to to prevent and, and hinder the gospel work, God said, no, I'm going to use it to actually propel the gospel. And that is what the sovereignty of God when we submit ourselves to his power, we'll do if we're willing to be a vessel, if we're willing to be used by him in that respect. Next, we find in verses 22 to 23, 
We need to represent our Savior. So we need to recognize our calling. And secondly, we need to represent our Savior. Now there were five key characteristics and qualities that we see in Jesus in going through suffering. Because it's not good enough to just go through suffering. It's important for us to go, to su- go through suffering God's way. Or, or the picture of suffering won't be complete. So how did Jesus do it? How can we emulate his example? There were, there were five ways that Jesus represented his commitment to the Father, alignment to the will of God the Father, in moving through hard things for the sake of obedience. Notice, verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This word committed is the word to do or to make. And uh, this first quality, this first characteristic is he did not sin. He did not sin. He continued to demonstrate perfect submission and obedience to God the Father. Throughout this section, Peter will continue to, to borrow from the, from the language of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, this, this preeminent uh, chapter in the Old Testament that points to the future ministry of Jesus Christ. This ministry of the suffering Savior. What was he going to look like? Well, he's going to look a certain way. And, and do we see those things in Jesus himself? Yes, we do. Isaiah 53, 9, the, the, the second half says, Although he has, had done no violence... And there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter borrows from this language and applies it to Christ. He had no sin. He had no deceit. This word violence isn't an act of single aggression, but but an act of violence against God and against God's law. Jesus, as Messiah, submitted himself to the will of the Father. He wasn't hostile against it or towards it. And his execution demonstrated that one may be absolutely faithful to God's will and still experience unjust suffering. That should be a comfort. And by the way, I want to make sure that you understand that Peter is by no means condoning the behavior of the abusing master. Jesus is just saying, or Peter is just saying, in those situations... Recognize who's really in control. Show Christ through your confidence in submission to him. Jesus, being the focus of the greatest intensity of temptation from Satan, stands as the preeminent example of one who is without sin. And by the way, through his suffering on the cross, he shows the greatest expression of obedience to God. Philippians 2.8 saying, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wonder if you ever feel like your spiritual life is languishing. You ever ever feel like you've kind of hit the wall, you've kind of plateaued from a spiritual perspective. Ask yourself the question, who is an authority in my life that I am unwilling to submit to? Maybe that will then begin to open the door for you in terms of walking through and seeing 
real spiritual awakening happening in your life? Who is it? Is it a boss? There's other examples. I'll let the Spirit fill that in for you. The cross becomes the preeminent example of obedience. If you want to grow in your Christian life, be willing to trust God in faith by submitting to the authorities he's placed over. Next, we see that he did not deceive. Verse 22, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Deceit is the word for treachery or slyness or trickery. And you ask the question, why point to deceit? And what will be interesting, as Peter begins to walk through these next three qualities, they all have to do with your mouth. Deceit, reviling, threatening. All of these things that, that really are the first echo of what's really going on inside because out of the mouth, the heart speaks, right? We know what's in the heart by, by the things that are coming out of your mouth. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19 says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. That's second on the list. And then at the very end of this list, he comes back to it in verse 19, a false witness who spreads lies. Jesus' holiness and purity was reflected in his pure and holy speech. He wasn't deceptive. He wasn't manipulative. He didn't have to, to coerce the people around him. All he needed to do was entrust himself to God. Verse 23, notice, he did not revile. When reviled, he did not revile in return. This word reviling is a word to insult or to slander, to use abusive language over and over again. This Greek word that, 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 that speaks to the consistency, this pattern of speaking evil against another individual. And, and, and that is in us, isn't it? When, when, when people criticize, when people slander us, we want to defend, we want to push back, we want to get the upper hand in some way, we want to call them various names. <laughs> we have maybe some select terms to use for certain people. What a jerk. Whatever the word is for you to help other people understand that what you're experiencing is some form, of, some form of justice, and you are not called to that kind of behavior. Your Savior did not revile in return. We think, I've got to stand up for myself. I shouldn't allow myself to be walked over. But Jesus was willing not only to refrain from reviling, we find that he also was silent. As a lamb, we find in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was willing to take it. Jesus was willing to demonstrate confidence in his Father. Verse 23, he also did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This word threaten is to warn this is to push back. It, it's, a, it's a way for, for, for you to oppose, to inflict some sort of verbal 
uh, retort. Jesus resigned himself to the will of the Father. There was no need for him to resist. And he had all the authority that he needed to make his threats good. He didn't need to save face. He didn't need to provide an excuse. Jesus was willing to entrust himself. We find that finally. He entrusted himself to God. Continued entrusting himself to God. I appreciate this example. Because what we're not talking about is turning a blind eye. We're not talking about excusing bad behavior. We're not talking about, uh, uh, about somebody who, who, is, who is impervious to the hard things that are happening and just rolls over and plays dead, as it were. What we're talking about is somebody who gives it to God and says, God, you are bigger, you are better, you are stronger, you are purer, you are holier than me, and you're going to make whatever happens happen, and it's going to be better than I could ever do on my, on my own. I trust that your vindication of this situation is better than I could ever inflict. I don't need to take matters into my own hands. I can trust you. This word in trust is to give over, to hand over. It's not to ignore. It's not to, it's not to say, uh, it doesn't really matter, but to say, it matters big, and I'm giving it to God who's going to take care of business. I trust him. And by the way, in taking this matter to God, we find as uh, Luke's first gospel turns the page to, to the outworking of that gospel in the early church in, in the book of Acts, we find in chapter 6 how this all plays out with priests from the Sanhedrin who were coming to faith in, in Christ who had been part of the dialogue in putting him to death. And here they are, now part of the church. Vindication had happened. Rescue had taken place. The work of redemption had made its way and, and found its mark in drawing them to salvation. God knows better than you. He knows better than me. Let him work out his plans and trust him by, by taking it to him in prayer. Finally, and quickly, remember your shepherd. Remember your shepherd. We find that in verses 24 and 25. First, we see that as you turn your eyes to the shepherd, you're going to see that he is the one who loves the church. He loves the church. Look at this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And this is not a, a physical healing that he's talking about. This is the, the deepest, greatest healing that you could ever need. And that is the need for a Savior to cleanse you of your sins and to restore you back to relationship with God. That's the work of your loving shepherd. That he loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. And he, and he did this to, to draw us into this relationship. And so, so that if, if Jesus gave himself, he gave the greatest and best gift that we could ever hope to have, he's not going to worry about the small stuff. He's taking care of the greatest stuff in himself in mending this broken relationship with God the Father. 
He's sweetly interested in your life. He will meet your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He will do it. Trust him. And finally, not only does he love the church, but he leads the church. Notice in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the shepherd who leads you by still waters, who is with you when life is hard, the, through the valley of the shadow of death, through, through all of those experiences. And I, and I want you to understand that, that as far as God's leadership is concerned, he is the great shepherd and he will always lead you in straight paths. He will always lead you in paths that are necessary for your life, not only so that you can know more about who he is, but so that you can maximize your uh, life for the gospel in reflecting his glory and accomplishing the purposes and objectives that he has set before you. You are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Walk according to his steps, and you will experience the benefits of God working on his purposes as his workmanship, as his, as his sheep. He will do that as he leads you. Will you follow? Oh God, I pray that you would help us to be willing to follow, follow you even through hard paths for the sake of gospel ministry, for the sake of usefulness, for the sake of fruitfulness, Help us to lay down our own personal interests for the sake of trusting you. You have called us to wisdom. Help us to exercise wisdom. Be wise as serpents, harmless as, as doves, and to turn our eyes to you, the giver of wisdom, as we seek to navigate the course of life that you have called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.